All right, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And today, Brad, uh, you know, it's that time of year we start uh, we start uh, talking about corn and corn planting. And so today we've got uh, with us our guest, uh, Jeff Coulter from St. Paul. So welcome, Jeff. Hi, guys. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of getting that to be that time of year, but it just doesn't feel like it. And uh, uh, I keep getting these questions like out of the, the, the general media, not the farm media. Well, are, are guys getting really antsy? And it's like, well, I don't know. The weather has been so lousy. It's uh, I, I, the, if you look at the calendar, you might get antsy, but the weather has been so rotten. Uh, it doesn't really have many people in a mood. Yeah, I I actually hauled some more firewood in last night and had a had a fire. It was what twenty six degrees overnight, I believe. So certainly more like March than it uh, than it is April. Um, that's for certain, and and pretty tough to get uh, get things going. I know I was uh, Brad talking with Jeff Fetch uh, from the Southern Research and Outreach Center, and he's been doing some uh, soil sampling for some of the projects he started this summer, and and he reported. Uh, hitting frost, uh, you know, pretty deep uh, in that kind of 14 to 17 inch zone. He was talking about running into frost well, soil sampling. And that's even after a couple of inches of rain we had here in Southeast Minnesota. So yeah, and, and I just got the weather report from the research station in Lamberton and they too were reporting frost uh, between 19 and, and 36 inches. Now the the western side of the state got fairly wet uh, late in the year last year, not not uh, early enough to do any good for last year's crops, but actually uh, they were above average on soil moisture when, when the ground froze. And so they had, there was a lot of water, or in essence, a lot of ice uh, in the soil, and it takes a lot of energy to take that out as opposed to uh, just poor space that's occupied by air. And so, yeah, it's just been so lousy uh, that that, that is, has not, uh, uh, it's just not not thought out uh, all the way through yet. Uh, it's in pockets. Uh, I was talking to some farmers who've been doing some drain tile installation and, and um, they're reporting that there's kind of a, a crummy frost that they're able to just break through. Uh, talked to one guy who was uh, dug a hole because he was going to bury some stumps. Uh, same thing. He said it was kind of slushy. Uh, um, clearly, it was frost, but it wasn't like this. You know, like trying to go through pavement. You know, if we think about frozen soil sometimes. So, yeah, hopefully things turn around. That should go out real fast uh, when it does. But it just uh, every day it just keeps staying lousy. Speaking of uh, speaking of tile lines, there, Brad. I did talk to a farmer about a week or so ago in that in the south central area, and uh, indicated that his tile lines had still been trickling all winter long. So it sounds like uh, like his situation, he's going to be sufficient with some some moisture. But are are there other concerns developing in that uh, area of the state? You think with some moisture deficiencies at this point? Well, it was still abnormally dry where I'm at in the south central area in Waseca County, but uh, we got quite a bit of rainfall this last week. Uh, I have still not noticed a lot of water running out of tile lines, but uh, I think we've got to be getting pretty close to normal. It's pretty typical this time of year to have the, the soil profile completely replenished. Uh, uh, obviously, there's no plants uh, to take up water. Transpiring evaporation is very minimal when it's this cold. 
Um, you know, the days are getting longer, but it's not like it's summertime yet. Uh, so evaporation isn't real high. So most of the precip we get is going into the ground. Uh, uh, we did get a couple of flash events that happened in a hurry that just kind of ran off because it couldn't soak in fast enough. But uh, in general, uh, I don't think there's a lot of concern pretty well anywhere in this, the state uh, at this moment as far as uh, soil moisture. Uh, somebody may correct me on that, but uh, that's been my perception right now. So, Jeff, what are what are you thinking as far as uh, corn progress? I know usually uh, we pass that crop insurance date, and and folks uh, start playing in some some fashion. Usually, kind of trying to find fields that are fit to start, and and uh, uh, we just really haven't had any opportunity yet. What are you? So, what have you been on your mind? I guess. Yeah, it seems like we're a couple weeks behind normal. Uh, as of yesterday, the minimum and maximum soil temperatures that were at Waseca at the four-inch depth were both around 33 degrees. And at Lamberton yesterday, the minimum soil temp was 33, the maximum was 35. And that's at the four-inch depth also. So it's still cold. Uh, you know, looking at the forecast, looks like it's going to warm up here uh, around Saturday, but then it's going to drop down again. Uh, around Monday. So, you know, uh, we're definitely behind if we look at the calendar, but uh, I don't think there's a great cause for concern yet. Um, when we look at the long-term results from the planting date trials that have been done by the University of Minnesota across the state, uh, typically that April 25 to May 12 window uh, gets us near maximum yield. And it looks like, you know, we're going to be in that scenario again this year where if we can get it in by, you know, the 12th of May or so, uh, we're going to be at maximum yield. But a lot of it depends on, you know, what the soil conditions are like at planting and when the tillage is done and those kinds of things. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we did a lot of analysis of climatic uh, records for our new advanced nitrogen smart session that we were teaching this winter. And on average, the at Wasika, and we use Wasika because they've got such a well-organized and, and complete data set there. But on average at Wasika, we hit 50 degrees soil temperature at six inches uh, on the 1st of May. Uh, you know, we're getting awfully close to that for it still to be in the 30s. Uh, so, so we're really dragging behind. You know, the other thing, though, that was interesting that was pertinent to this is I wanted to look at uh, working days, um, which is kind of difficult as far as how you actually measure working days. Uh, but uh, the, the USDA crop reports actually have that data on it. That's the first line for those who, who report uh, uh, weekly uh, to, for, the, for USDA's uh, data collection. It says number of days suitable for field work on the top of that report sheet. Uh, and so they've got that data available. Now, unfortunately, uh, it's uh, averaged across the whole state. And we know that uh, all the way from the Canadian border to the Iowa border, there's gonna be pretty wide range of, of uh, conditions early, particularly early in the year. Uh, but that's available. And then uh, Bill Lazarus, one of our ag economists, also put a model together looking at, the, um, at uh, some of the climate data from Lamberton and uh, anyway, I guess what I'm saying is, uh, typically speaking, um, what we found is the average number of working field working days from April 15th to May 15th is about 10. 
which is uh, pretty interesting. I found it interesting, Jeff, because, you know, my old days uh, starting as a county agent, we used to always say uh, you should be able to get your corn planted in 10 days. Uh, and that turns out that that was uh, the average number of working days we had uh, in that 30-day that period. Yeah, that's that's interesting, Brad. The the thing that get, you get me thinking about when you you mentioned some of those numbers is is this potential to create quite a bit of bottleneck here if we had almost no working days uh, through April and uh, in with some of the predicted rain and continued kind of cool temperatures, it could potentially create a bottleneck this year to get some of those uh, uh, field operations done and all the logistics of fertilizer delivery and seed and all of that sort of thing. So certainly well, we've it, cut some days off. And it's interesting, Ryan, that you mentioned that as far as it being a bottleneck, because we'd been hearing a lot of issues relative to delays of delivery of, of inputs uh, because of other factors, uh, energy and availability of transportation and so forth. And so you know, it's possible that maybe uh, some of these uh, products are going to catch up to us, um, even though uh, if we had been ready on time, they might not have. So maybe, uh, in fact, uh, the bottleneck was avoided, or at least the initial one, with some of the logistics of getting these things in place. And we'll get them when we're ready. So that's uh, that's interesting, too. The one thing I've been thinking about, Brad, is this if you remember back, I think it was March, we strung together a couple of these 60-degree days, and I think the, the long-term weather service forecast at that uh, at that time turned to uh, say uh, we were going to be warmer than normal, and boy, did they get it dead wrong again. I don't know I don't know what to think. It's interesting. I had a conversation with Dennis Toddy, who's with the, uh, uh, the, the regional... Uh, I don't, I'm the, the, I don't climate hub. The, the climate hub. There we go. Uh, about this very topic, about how these these long range forecasts seem to change so radically over just a couple of days. You know, they're trying to predict what it's going to be like in the next two weeks or or month or so, and then like three days later, it's the polar opposite. But uh, I guess it just shows how difficult it is. Uh, there's just so many dynamics. Uh, uh, relative to uh, the jet stream and and uh, temperature in the oceans and and uh, just all sorts of things that can start moving stuff in a different direction. So, yeah, you know, we'd like to be able to use some of those long-term uh, weather forecasts a little better for making plans. Uh, I, I guess uh, uh, I've uh, sort of implored some of those guys to start analyzing uh, what the the level of accuracy of those things are so we can start getting a little better feel for that. But uh, I guess at this point, uh, um, they're interesting to look at, but maybe we can't use them for a lot. <laughs> Take them with a grain of salt, so to speak. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh... So, so, Jeff, have you been hearing? I know, I know, uh, you know, I just mentioned that there has been some issues with input uh, availability. Have you been hearing any problems with... Uh, with movement of, of uh, different seed varieties uh, uh, getting in, either getting into the United States or, or um, just simply from availability? Are you hearing any reports of that? No, I haven't heard anything. We got our seed on time and it seemed like uh, everything was going according to normal. But uh, yeah, I haven't heard a lot. Where is a lot, is, is most of the, We've been hearing a lot over the recent years about seed production, uh, for instance, in South America, where it's 
uh, getting harvested, bagged, and coming straight to the U.S. and going right back into the ground. Uh, is that really that big of a thing, or is it still sort of a, an anomaly? I guess my, my my question is, is how much of our seed that we're planting is, is domestically produced, and how much of it is, is coming in with that kind of production method? Yeah, that's interesting, Brad. Uh, I delivered some seed on Friday, and uh, I looked at the tag on one of them, and it said it was from Chile. And, uh, but if, if I think back over the years, a lot of the seed has been from, you know, Indiana or Iowa. Um, you know, there has been some from Chile. Uh, I guess I, I couldn't tell you exactly what percent of the total is, is from South America, but seems like it's a substantial amount. I don't know if it's over 50% or not. Jeff, was that from a newer hybrid or was that uh, something that had been around for a year or two? Uh, it was a relatively new hybrid. And we've been hearing kind of rumors about uh, the status of, you know, a lot of the, the seed companies used to do a lot of work in Hawaii. Uh, you know, we've been kind of hearing rumbling that that's kind of maybe coming to an end uh, due to logistics and, and real estate prices and uh, uh, cost of doing business uh uh, there and so forth. And so I don't know if that's really much of a thing anymore or not, if we're getting if much coming out of Hawaii anymore or not. I think that's mainly for, you know, the breeding nurseries and stuff and that the actual seed production uh, is not there. So Jeff, you mentioned that uh, we're likely here, if things warm up, we could hit some of those optimal winding, windows for uh, corn planting to sort of maximize uh, yield opportunities. Um, just trying to think, are, are there any pointers you want to give to people or guidelines when we start uh, getting antsy and thinking about starting those planning operations? Yeah, so everybody's looking at the calendar and is getting really excited here. I think a key thing is to, you know, make sure it's dry enough before you get out there and do your pre-plant tillage and planting. I think that's going to be really key. Another thing to think about is what is the soil temperature and what is the soil temperature expected to be during the one to two days after planting. You know, waiting until 50 degrees to plant is probably not so feasible, maybe, especially in this year. But uh, we want to avoid having a soil temperature uh, that we want to avoid having a minimum soil temperature of around 40 degrees or less within one to two days after planting. You know, ideally in a year like this, uh, the, you know, the minimum soil temperature would be in the, the mid 40s uh, when we're planting and the maximum temp might approach 50, but maybe not. You know, I don't think we need to wait till the soil temp is 50 degrees, but we want to avoid having a, a, a minimum daily soil temp of around 40 or less uh, with, within one to two days after planting. So. That'll be something to think about, but, uh, you know, I think once it dries out, I'm optimistic that, you know, maybe that soil temp uh, will start to creep up quite a bit. That sun has a lot of power this time of year, so, uh, you know, I'm optimistic that things can come together. But again, uh, an another thing to realize is that, you know, we still got plenty of time when we look at, you uh, results from the planning date trials that we've did across Minnesota. Uh, we did 26 planning date trials between 2009 and 2016. And uh, when we look on average across all those trials, uh, planting dates of between April 25 and May 12, 
produced maximum yield. And it varied with the year, you know, in years when it was a very early spring, you know, maybe like an April 18 or April 15 planting date uh, produced maximum yield. Um, but, you know, in a, in a year like this, when there hasn't really been any growing degree days accumulated yet, uh, you know, we're not, we're not really losing anything. You know, one of the areas that, uh, that I've been getting questions about, and I think, uh, of course, uh, the, the issues relative to nitrogen um, have been high on a lot of people's minds on account of the cost, uh, uh, but obviously we've had no field work done uh, this spring to any extent in Minnesota, and so fields that, that still need nitrogen applied have not had that happen either. And uh, so I've been getting questions relative to um, what, what should we be thinking as far as doing that spring application? I think one of the points that I've been making is that, that really your, your planting is probably the single most important thing. Uh, there's a couple of uh, asterisks on that. Uh, uh, we do want to remind folks if they're growing corn on corn that that, that, that frequently can show nitrogen uh, deficiency much more readily due to immobilization decomposition of last year's residue so those circumstances i would prioritize for getting some nitrogen applied or at least make sure you have some starter fertilizer there uh, but in in a lot of cases where we've got a corn soybean rotation uh, we really don't see a lot of harm with with doing that nitrogen application even after the the crop is planted uh, um, so, so probably that, you know, as we move later, that planting is going to be a little higher priority than, than getting the fertilizer applied. So Brad, yesterday we were, we were talking about some, uh, kind of a particular issue for folks that, uh, may have used a cover crop and are going into corn this year. Uh, what are your thoughts there with fertility and the cool temperatures and some of what we've seen in the past with, uh, maybe some nutrient deficiencies when, when we've got a, a overwintering cover crop in place. Yeah, well, one of the other questions we get about, and it kind of comes back to that whole starter fertilizer thing is, uh, guys will ask how much can I put on uh, before it becomes a, a seed safety issue. Um, you know, frequently if the equipment is, is not putting it in close contact with the seed, um, that's really not the, the main concern. I think the a bigger concern frequently is how often do you want to stop and fill the tanks? You know, if, if time is really precious. Now, the reason I'm saying that in reference to the question you just asked is uh, I think that if you have a cover crop, particularly if it was something like rye, um, that, that green back up that you had to kill, uh, that is a circumstance where we, we're going to want to be kind of careful with making sure we have uh, enough uh, nitrogen available. That's, a, again, a circumstance where there can be some temporary immobilization of, uh, of, uh, of nitrogen, and you can see early deficiency symptoms. So that's really one thing, but with as cold as it is, the cover crops I've seen, they're just not growing. I mean, there. I've seen fields that clearly had cover crops seeded in them, but but it's still really short and spindly, and so I don't think there's any special concern at this moment. Now, if it gets later in the year uh, and it stays wet, and then some of that stuff gets tall, then I think we're going to have to be a little more careful. Uh, I did have a, a grower call me last week who had cover crops who was thinking about just simply top dressing urea. 
Uh, again, I think you got to be kind of careful about that. If, if you've got a tall, uh, dead ryegrass out there and you're throwing urea on top of that, uh, some of that, that nitrogen may become temporarily uh, unavailable to the crop. Uh, uh, so you may want to look at uh, some other way of applying a, a dribble band closer to the row or Y-drops or something like that that doesn't put it in contact with a lot of that residue. Uh, that's probably the big things to think about with that cover crop stuff. Yeah, so so that the other thing that I start to get a little nervous of, you mentioned it wasn't growing real well. Well, any of those winter covers that didn't terminate, uh, you know, that we, that we uh, were expecting to overwinter and, and then need to terminate prior to or at or around the time of crop planting, certainly these cold conditions can uh, provide some challenges to get uh, good kill and management of, of those covers if, if we're tending to use a herbicide to, uh, to terminate them and, uh, and plant our cash crop. So that's certainly something that, that crosses my mind. Um, but like you said, things just really haven't grown much. And if we look back at uh, some of the other phenology that happens typically this time of year. I know the old timers will say, uh, you know, not to plant corn till the, the oak leaves are the size of a squirrel's ear, or uh, there are a couple of other uh, of those old sayings, Brad, but uh, phenology-wise, where are we at uh, uh, with other things in your observation? Well, you know, I, I make maple syrup, and so I'm able to kind of keep track of how the spring progresses based on that being a uh, a plant that moves uh, very early in the, the spring, uh, the sap will start rising in a maple tree. Um, more or less when the, I, I don't want to say the frost is completely out of the soil, but um, it requires the temperature to be above freezing during the day, below freezing during the night. Uh, and then uh, then later in the year, as, as it stays warm, the sugar in that sap turns into carbohydrate and the sap becomes unusable as syrup. It gets an off flavor and it looks kind of burned and so forth. And so uh, that's when things kind of end. Um, really, uh, the latest that we had ever been able to make maple syrup, in the, and I've been doing it since the early 1990s, uh, was about the 4th of April. Uh, sap was still running you know, through last week, uh, we ended up pulling all of our stuff because it's just, it's late and the kids got baseball and we got other activities and we're just kind of done with it. Uh, uh, so kind of, we've kind of blown through the last, the latest dates of that by two full weeks uh, um, from the last couple of years. And, you know, typically speaking, um, the, as far as in the woods, uh, you'll see, you um, uh, Particularly, it's elderberries, I think, is one of the first uh, things to, to leaf out. But I've seen no sign of much of anything turning green. And so, boy, it's it's really hard to say right now just where we're at uh, uh, from that standpoint. Um, you know, it, it'll clearly it'll all happen in a hurry, um, but we aren't there yet. Yeah, I was out this weekend, and there's a little uh, garlic mustard had gotten a little bit of a start Uh Buckthorn, not much to speak of, and typically that one kind of comes on early and stays late, and just haven't haven't seen much of anything really. So it'll be interesting to see how fast things do turn on once the weather turns around here. Yeah, um, you know, Jeff, I I one thing that I've been kind of curious about because it kind of relates back to this. Uh, you know, how many days do we have to plant and, and so forth. And we've seen the tendency towards much, much larger planters 
um, the last uh, the last few years. Uh, uh, have you really seen much of anything as far as uh, um, those creating compaction issues or, or, or stand issues in, in places along the planter bar? There's an awful lot of weight um, going on with the planter. I guess another curiosity I have is, you know, farmers used to, of course, a lot of this related back to using plates uh, in planters, which we don't use anymore. But there was a lot of concern in the past about uh, uh, seed shape and and uh, the level of accuracy you had with the planter. Very difficult when you're delivering seed in bulk to 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 be real super consistent with that. Uh, um, have you seen any issues relative to some of these things and some of the large planter sizes? You know, and as it's kind of pertinent to trying to to go as fast as possible, probably this spring. Yeah, uh, one of the things that comes up is that uh, you know sometimes the planting depth doesn't get quite as deep on the wings of the planter uh, compared to the center. Uh, it, a lot of it depends on soil conditions. Um, you know, last year when it was very dry, that, that was an issue for some growers. So, you know, it's good to get out of the tractor and, you know, dig up some seeds and uh, check up, check out what the planting depth is at uh, different places along the planter bar. You know, and then maybe when you change to a different field that has different residue conditions or something, you know, it's good to repeat that process just to make sure uh, that you're getting that seed at the depth you're, you're trying to. Have you had any experience with the uh, the whole high speed uh, planting thing as far as uh, uh, to have a feeling for whether that's performing as well as what we would consider normal field speeds? You know, I, I've, I've talked to a number of farmers over the last several years who say that uh, that just doesn't interest them, that they're not, they just don't want to be driving that fast when they plant corn kind of regardless because they just they just don't trust it but this year clearly i think a lot of guys are going to be pushing to try and get as much done as fast as they can yeah i looked at some research trial data that's been uh, published that was uh, comparing you know the high speed planters versus a uh, normal speed and uh, there was no significant difference in the yields for most of it um so yeah, it seems to me that the technology is there and it works, uh, but like all things, you have to, you know, spend some time with it probably and make sure that that it is doing what you're wanting it to do. You know, and another thing that 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 uh, never used to happen, Jeff, uh, uh, that the current technology is allowing is planting uh, after dark and into the night. Uh, do you have any advice if farmers are looking at? Uh, using their RTK and just keep right on going through the night this at this time of year? Yeah, you know, that can work, um, definitely. Um, but, you know, things to think about are fatigue and, uh, you know, safety. That's important. I mean, the lighting system on that we have now on the equipment is far superior compared to what it used to be. But, uh, you know, still think about fatigue and safety and, uh, you know, Sometimes you have to weigh the, weigh the benefits of getting uh, some more acres in versus just calling it a night and uh, leaving it for tomorrow. And, uh, you know, we have to just kind of think about those things as well. And, and in many cases, you know, what does it matter if we get, you know, uh, some more acres in versus if we leave it tomorrow, especially if the weather's good. So Well, and those uh, those telephone poles have a tendency to sneak up on you in the dark, so... Another thing to think about, uh, 
you certainly don't want to be put out of the field with a, a big equipment repair because you you clobbered something that was unforgiving. So speaking of technology, Jeff, uh, uh, trying to think here, you've uh, you've been doing some work with using um, uh, with corn and corn fertility work. I'd, what do you got in store for this season for in terms of some of those projects and maybe fill us in a little bit on what you guys have been working on? Yeah, so I've been working with Yushin Mao, and he's the direct associate director of the Precision Ag Center at the U of M. And uh, we got a pretty exciting project that we're doing this year. It's the second year of this project. And uh, what we're looking at, it's called Precision Nitrogen Management. And uh, essentially what we do with this project is um, we put on strips of different rates of nitrogen pre-plant and uh, going, say, like 40% of the normal rate, 70% of the normal rate, 100, and then like a, a like 130% or something. And then uh, we use aerial imagery at around the V7, V8 stage. And then based on that imagery, uh, we develop response curves of the corn to nitrogen. And then based on those, uh, we do site-specific side dressing throughout the field. And that's a later side dress that's done at about the V8 to V9 stage. Um, so last year we had a few trials in, in Minnesota. Um, and on, on many of those trials, we were able to produce about 95% of the normal yield with about half of the nitrogen, which is amazing. But and that, that was even in a dry year, you know, where it wasn't necessarily conducive for a late side dress. So in some of those fields, the corn was temporarily stressed um, due to that late side dress application followed by dry conditions afterwards. So it was uh, slow for that nitrogen to get into the soil and be taken up by the crop. But in a more normal year, um, some of the older research is showing that this system can produce uh, equivalent yields with less nitrogen. So um, this is kind of a, a really interesting thing. Um, the idea is, is that after we do enough trials in Minnesota, we'll be able to develop an app or some sort of other way that, that farmers can uh, take, that they can go out there and implement these pre-plant strips of nitrogen and then uh, do this, uh, obtain this aerial imagery data. And then this program would just calculate the, the precision side dress application rates throughout the field. And then they farmers would be able to get those applied accordingly. Um, so this is really, really quite innovative. And one of the, the things about it is uh, it's very site specific. So it's hybrid specific, you know, because you got a hybrid, a single hybrid in the field and you're taking imagery of this hybrid and you're seeing how the color and the, the vegetative index changes uh, based on the strips of nitrogen and then based on the known relationship between uh, the vegetative index at around the V8 stage to grain yield that's how we come up with the, the site-specific end rates. Um, so it's, it's showing very, very promising, but uh, you know, there are some logistical challenges uh, with getting that late season, uh, well, slightly late citrus application on, you know, at the V8, V9 stage. Um, but it's something that we're working on and we're trying to see how it uh, also will work in systems where manure has been used or where there's been a cover crop or other things. 
but right now we're kind of fine-tuning it and uh, trying to get some farmers to to test it um, and get a little experience with it. So who's developing the, the remote sensing or the aerial imaging from you? Is that a, a publicly available database? Are you paying for, for those images or developing them yourself? Yeah, so the aerial imagery comes from uh, PlanetScope. And uh, I don't know all the details on it, but I... I, my understanding is is it's it's uh, has a uh, the, the images are taken regularly enough that um, and they're at they're at a pretty good resolution. Um, so yeah, that that's how that's working. There are other uh, options as well for maybe a little more uh, detailed imagery, uh, but uh, my understanding is that that more detailed imagery isn't really necessary based on the added cost. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, we will be interested to see how that develops. And so you've got a number of farms this year that you'll be trying the same sort of strategy again? Yeah, last year I think we did around seven farms in Minnesota, and then there was around the same number of farms that were done in Indiana. This year uh, we're also doing, I think, six or seven farms in Minnesota and a similar number in Indiana. So. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're working on this and getting the trials implemented here for this year and also getting the results summarized from last year. Um, so it, it's quite intensive, but uh, we look forward to uh, getting some solid results that we can present, uh, you know, for this upcoming, the upcoming winter here in about eight, eight months from now. And uh, also we hope to have a field day or two sometime either this summer or next summer, so um, where we can actually see some of this in the field. Well, we'll have to follow back and kind of follow up with you on, on some of that as, as time progresses here. Uh, anything else you guys are thinking about today? Oh, I'd just like to throw out, because uh, we were talking about uh, nitrogen and being precise with that, you know, one of the messages that we've been uh, delivering here throughout the fall and winter was the potential to have carryover nitrogen from last year on account of how dry it's been. Uh, not quite so dry anymore, which is kind of what we expected to happen in the spring, but there still is the opportunity that there is some residual soil nitrate that might be picked up by a corn plant this year. Uh, the, uh, the, the window to do soil sampling and get the results back uh, uh, in time uh, uh, to make a nitrogen management decision is really a, certainly as narrowing, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but that still is an option. I think the key, though, is is to remember for producers that that uh, the the results of that soil test are not calibrated if you did a a nitrogen fertilizer application. So, uh, for instance, if you say, "Well, I want to put a half rate on, and then I'll see." Uh, how much more I need. Well, once that half rate's on, you take a soil test and it's really difficult to determine uh, what was the applied fertilizer, what was the residual, and then how you should adjust the rates and so forth. So if you still are thinking about taking a soil nitrate test to determine your overall application rate uh, of nitrogen for this year's corn crop, you, you will want to leave at least some area uh, unfertilized in order to take that test. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be very difficult to interpret the, the results. So I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. Um, as far as uh, uh, other things relative to that nitrogen application, uh, um, you know, I guess the, the price thing continues to be an issue. 
but I do know that uh, that uh, the, the dealers I spoke to, uh, there is not a lot of issues relative to availability. Um, price is going to be higher, uh, you know, particularly with UAN. Uh, that's always uh, one of our most expensive fertilizer sources, if for no other reason, because it's mostly water and it's expensive moving water up and down the road. Um, and so farmers will want to kind of uh, pay attention to the economic side of that, uh, we currently are at about a, a 0.17 uh, price ratio, which is uh, historically high. Um, but I do know that Dan Kaiser has updated the um, the uh, uh, rate calculator, and and uh, so we are able to to more accurately reflect that. the The thing is, uh, uh, the recommended rates have crept upward. But if you consider the changing uh, price ratio, well, this is one of the reasons why we didn't get real excited about this, because the, the current price ratio would tend to favor lower uh, application rates from an economic standpoint, but that's kind of been offset with the uh, research data that's shown a little bit higher uh, nitrogen needs right now, and so really it's kind of come out as a wash. Uh, so from that standpoint, I guess we're kind of telling producers to just kind of do what they've been doing the last couple of years uh, for overall rate for nitrogen management. Assuming that you're following uh, good recommendations and not over-applying. I'll, I'll always throw that caveat in. Well, certainly that's a, yeah, a dollar a pound kind of rate we're looking at right now for cost. Oh, higher than that, yeah. Even higher than that, that's yeah. uh, a going to be something to, to think about as we move forward and look at uh, or look for some of those opportunities to kind of adjust and become a little bit more efficient or adaptive or whatever you want to call it. But uh, uh, certainly there's going to be a lot of interest uh, with that as we move forward. So, All right. Well, thanks, guys. And I want to thank our listeners out there for listening to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.